At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. My name is David Patton. I'm a pastor here at Gospel Community Church, and it is my absolute pleasure and joy to be standing before you today as we open up God's Word and and, and peer in to see what He is revealing to us today. May our hearts be open to His leading, to His conviction, and to His love. So as I've read the text this week, I've, I've wondered... Have, have we ever waited on something? So I'm asking you, have you ever waited on something? Something that you really wanted? Something that you really wanted and desired? Uh, you wanted it so much you yearned for it. Maybe for you that was a call from the doctor after an exam. Uh, maybe it was a test that was done for your child. Maybe it was to learn whether you did or didn't get the promotion at work. Maybe you've waited for your next paycheck to come in. All of these things, we, we know the feeling. As I talk about waiting, we know that deep feeling in our hearts as we feel empty without whatever it is that we're waiting on. You see, we've all waited and pined for that next season of life or that answer that would lead us into the what's next. I know many of you are waiting right now. Your circumstances may be different, but God's promise today to you is true, and it applies to all of us uh, right here and right now. And his word this morning is a blessing to you. So, So listen as we walk through. But of course, we've all been waiting. We, we wait. That's what we do in life. For instance, if you're over the age of probably 20 or 25, you once waited on the school bus. Now, kids today don't wait on the school bus, but, but if you're older than 25, you probably waited on the school bus. You waited to turn 16, so you didn't have to wait on the school bus. You could drive yourself to school. You waited to graduate high school, waited to graduate college. You waited to find that special person to get married to. You waited to have children. Many of you today are waiting to quit working and retire. This sounds like the life cycle that we lead, uh, but is that what we want our story to be like, waiting on the next stage? If we spend our days wishing away life for the next thing because we are dissatisfied with our current stage of life, we will be living a life well wasted. Much like a farmer who plants his seed. He he plants his seed in the spring and, and harvest isn't till fall. So what shall that farmer do? Shall he just sit and wait for his seed to come up? Well, if he does that, his seed will be entangled by weeds. It will be uh, covered in many pests and mutilated by disease. But no, the farmer doesn't just sit and wait, right? He, 
he actively works in the season before the harvest to prepare for the harvest, right? He, he is providing weed control, pest control, disease prevention for that harvest. He's getting his grain bins and his silos ready. He's doing preventative maintenance on his harvesting equipment. Why? Because he knows the harvest is coming. He's actively waiting. So it... it it, it causes me to do a sort of a self-analysis, a self-study. How do we wait? How do I wait? We, we are often, as people, prone to do two different styles of waiting. One is being stagnant, right? So the, the farmer who plants a seed and waits, right? Stagnant. Uh, this, this is a style of waiting that is very lazy, right? We know a goal is set in the future, and we just sit and wait on it. Uh, we don't do anything in the meantime. We don't multitask, which probably means this is the style of waiting that most men do. No amens. Okay. It's just me. It's just me. This is the style of waiting I do. Um, two, stagnant waiting is focused on the goal and not the present. Basically, nothing else matters. I will be... I want to be married, therefore this time, this, this situation that I'm in right now doesn't matter. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this new job. When I get this new job, I'll be able to get the things that I want. That's what I'm looking for. Right now, nothing else matters. Uh, third, on, uh, stagnant waiting leads to a false sense of preparedness. Uh, I know this is me. This is me. Uh, it's prone to procrastination, right? When I procrastinate, I'm saying, I'll be ready when the time comes, but for now, I'll just wait. The other way, the other way of waiting is anxiety. Anxiety. Um, when you are paralyzed with fear for the future, how I'm going to get there, and what it's actually going to be like when I get there. We're paralyzed. We can't actually be present in the present because all of our fear is for the future. Also, this calls you to be zealous for yourself and for others. When I mean zealous, I mean you try to control yourself or control others because you want to control that future circumstance. Last, a way that we wait in anxiety is um, it's a hindrance to our ability to look through the future or to the future through the fog of today. We can't, we can't, we can't get through our daily life because these future uncontrollable circumstances are creating this fog that we just can't see through, we can't fight through. But there is a, another way that we can wait, a way that leads to more contentment and vibrancy in our current stage without giving up on the future goal. And I believe that this is the type of waiting that our text today lays out. It's active patience. Active patience. Uh, I didn't make a slide for it, but active patience. Uh, when you have active patience, you are resolved to stay the course. Similar to a ninth grader who studies his history, studies his reading, studies his math, because he wants to get good grades. Why? Because he wants to graduate high school. So he's hitting the books early so that he can hit this future goal. Uh, two, and I think this is important, is grace-filled towards yourself and others. When we are actively patient, we can accept the challenges that others bring into our life without trying to control and manipulate them towards our future goal. We accept 
that there will be curves in the road, there'll be bumps in the road, and that we don't have to lash out at the people who cause them. And last, when we wait in active patience, we are a help uh, for your ability to embrace challenges and unseen or even seeming defeat in our struggle toward the goal. So it's on the same thought as the last point. We're not allowing bumps in the road to derail us, but allowing for course correction. Much like Christians aren't perfected upon conversion. We, we live a life of sanctification where we're growing more and more like Christ, even though we, we still stumble and we still fall. This, this was profound. When I, when I, when I found this, d- these definitions of waiting and patience, it, it changed the way I was viewing this text. So I just want to put it on the screen right now. Waiting is all about time. Waiting is all about time. It's about stopping or delaying action until the thing you want actually happens. It takes away the possibility of being present because now becomes an expectation for the future. On the other hand, patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, and suffering without getting upset or angry. Do you see the difference? One is based on time, and the other is the ability to navigate through the bumps in the road, navigate through the curves in the road, patiently walking towards a goal. Waiting is boring. It's dull. It's lifeless. It's actionless, stagnant, and ultimately, it cannot seize the present, nor can it cope with delay and setback, whereas patience is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's active and full of life. It seizes the day, for there is much to do, and it anticipates the future while suffering through hardships of the present. Rolls with the punches, where where waiting can't cope with delay. So do you see the difference? I think that difference is going to be helpful as we get into the text today. Because today in 2 Peter, we pick up on Peter's argument from last week in the beginning of chapter 3, where he's making an argument against scoffers who've come into the church. These scoffers who've come into the church are saying, where is the coming again of the promised return of Christ? He's had plenty of time. He's had plenty of time to come back. Where is he? Oh, he must not be coming, right? But Peter is calling for a whole different style of waiting. See, the scoffer's view of waiting was based on time. Peter's calling for a whole different style of waiting. These people are spreading lies and dissension about the return of Christ, calling people away from a belief of the living and living for the return uh, of Christ. But Peter is calling for a whole different style of waiting. It's not based on time, as the scoffers say, or at least not our timing. And God's timing calls us to a life of active patience. As Kirk said last week, living today like Christ will return tomorrow. So let's do this. Let's let's take a look at the text. We're going to do a flyover overview of the text before we dive in and begin to parse it out. I know this is difficult to to read. There's, There's a lot of text here. As we look at the text as a whole... What we're looking for is the answer to the question from last week. Where is the promise? 
So what we were going to find first is in verse 10, Peter identifies the promise. The day of the Lord will come. That's what they're saying. The day of the Lord won't come because it hasn't come yet. And Peter's saying the day of the Lord will come like a thief, like a thief. And as a result of this promise, down here in the last verse, verse 13, we get the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ returns, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell, where the people of God will dwell forever and ever. This is the promise of his coming and the result of it. And also, he's going to qualify it, isn't he? He's going to say, but don't wait for him on your timeline. The promise, Christ is coming. The result, the new heavens and the new earth. But, but God doesn't see time like you see time. Don't say, well, Christ has been dead for X amount of years. Therefore, he's had plenty of time to come back. Because God doesn't operate on your time. He operates on his time where he says that the Lord, as one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. We know that God's promises are true. God's promises have always been true, and they'll always be true. He, he will come back, as the text says, but it's not on your timeline. So let's go ahead and get into the text. Verse 8 reads, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So let's pick up on that argument from last week that we were talking about. Scoffers came into the church and were saying, if Jesus is going to return, why hasn't he come back, right? Let's look at 2 Peter 3, 4. This is where they said it. It says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers, unbelievers, uh, teachers made this argument, it has happened, or it hasn't happened yet, therefore it's not going to happen. Therefore, you can live your life however you want to live your life because judgment for your sins, judgment for your actions is not coming because he hasn't come back. Their argument is based on time, the time between the promise and the return, the time between the prediction and the second coming. By this time, Jesus would have, had, have been gone for decades, and he hasn't come back. But Peter points out that God sees and experiences time wholly different from us. God exists outside of time. God exists outside of time. God never began to exist He's always existed as the Trinity uh, enjoyed and loved and worshipped each other over and over again. That was outside of time uh, in the beginning. It says in the Bible, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the immaterial spirit that exists outside of time because he existed before time began. Before time was, God was. But God created time. In creation, time began, and there began a succession of moments, one after the other. And it's so weird, as, as I'm trying to think about that, my, my brain can't wrap its mind around no time. Like, how does God not act and then act 
after that, and then act after that? How is there no succession of moments? But my brain wasn't created to wrap around that fact. Uh, God is. So the space, let me get it right, the space-time-matter theory in physics essentially says space, time, and matter must exist together. They can't, none none of the three can exist outside of each other. Um, So the space-time-matter theory in physics simply says that matter, time, and space must exist together. Thus, before God created the universe, time did not exist. So before God created matter out of nothing, time didn't exist. Therefore, when he created, time began. This is so boring. You guys have Blank stares and uh, physics is boring. Um, but God can operate in time, can't he? Uh, though God exists fully outside of time, he can operate in time, right? He spoke to the prophets to be able to speak to someone who is in time. God must be acting in time. God spoke to the prophets. Uh, God uh, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was in time, and, and God acted in time to destroy that city because of the, the sin and evil that was in it. God brought his son in the fullness of time, and, and, and the, the God-man, Jesus, entered into human history in time, and the Bible says, at the right time. And Jesus, or God is working in your life right now. So God exists outside of time. God created time. God can operate in time, but here's the most important God does not operate on your timeline. He doesn't operate on your timeline. How many of you have wanted him to operate on your timeline? Just me again. And when I want God to operate on my timeline and he doesn't, what does that lead to? Frustration. I'm frustrated. God, where are you? What are you doing? Have you left me here to fend for myself? Have you left me in the valley? Why haven't you answered me? Why haven't you answered me? And what that leads to, that frustration leads to, oftentimes is that stagnancy. When God, when we feel like God is not answering us, it leads to that stagnancy, and we essentially do nothing but waiting on, purely waiting, stagnant waiting on an eternal God is wasting our time. It's wasting our time. When we sit and wait and expect and become frustrated and become stagnant, we are wasting the life that God gave us. So again, that's what this text is calling us out of, calling us out of stagnant waiting and into that active patience. Let's look at where he got this uh, notion from. Peter is quoting Psalm 90 when he speaks of a thousand years as a day. Psalm 94 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, uh, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O child of mine, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. The psalmist is saying that to God, or time to God is not as it is to us. He can see the scope of history as if it were a day. That would be helpful right now, wouldn't it? For us, it would be helpful. We often want to know what's coming next. We often want to know what the diagnosis is. 
Where are the paychecks coming? Where are the provisions coming from? We want to know the answers of our questions, but, but we don't because we see time as a succession of moments. We can't see the future, but, but God can. He wrote our names on his palm before the foundations of the world. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. He, he knows the, the end from the beginning. And we, we don't. To be able to see that outcome before the beginning would be helpful to our hearts as we suffer through life. But God sees and experiences large spans of time clearly knowing the end from the beginning. But then he adds to the saying, saying a day is a thousand years. So the first was a thousand years is a day. A day is a thousand years is something that, that Peter adds in. What clarity it would bring to a day if we could see one day as if it were a thousand years. Let me break this down. The passion of the Christ. The the, the last week, the last few days of Christ. We, We read it and it takes five minutes. But the orchestration of that day, the men, the women whose lives were so orchestrated from birth the governments that were so orchestrated to uh, raise up the Christ and kill the Christ, the, the resurrection of the Christ. All of these things, if we were to be able to look at these few moments in history as if it were a thousand years, we would just see the miracles. We would see the wonders of what God poured into those last few moments of the life of Christ. And to our minds, it doesn't make sense. In fact, it doesn't make sense that it can be both. How can he see a thousand years as a day and a day as a thousand years? Our mind would explode trying to understand it. But we are not going to understand the paradoxical nature of God. We're just not. Suffice it to say, he can see and experience time as quickly or as slow as he desires. He desires. God is eternal. His thought is not like ours. So let's, 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 taking that clarification of the qualities of God and moving on into the text, we see the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So in one sense, we can say, how can a God who sees a thousand years in a day be slow? But when we're wanting him to operate on our timeline, It seems like he crawls like a snail, doesn't it? God is not slow in any of his actions because his timeline is perfect. I think it's what we have to, like, get right with. His timeline is perfect. Ours is imperfect. He perfectly created time and perfectly works in time to bring forth his will. Let me show you this. In Romans 5, 6, it says... For while we were yet weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died. Ephesians 1.9, making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The fullness of time means after an appropriate amount of time has passed or at the perfect time. The Roman Empire had 
created in that time byways and highways for massive travel in that region of the Mediterranean. They had created what was known as the Pax Romana, a time of peace where there was free travel within the countries around the Mediterranean. They had also created a, a torture device called the cross that, that was used for massive suffering for those who were inflicted by it, that massive suffering which God had foretold that Jesus would bear for us. God planned the redemption of humankind. At just the right time, God sent his son into the world. The time of the incarnation, the crucifixion and resurrection is the time of completeness, a time when God fulfilled his promises of the Old Testament. This redemption will, of course, be ultimately completed by the second coming of Christ. The salvation that Jesus inaugurated in the church at his first coming will be consummated in his second and this is the promise. This is the promise. His return, final judgment, and glorious reign forever is true. And it is coming. Remember the scoffers were saying Jesus wasn't coming back. Therefore, do what is right in your own eyes. If Jesus doesn't return, there is no judgment. If Jesus doesn't return, there is no paradise other than what you see on this earth. But... We know that God always fulfills his promises. He doesn't future fake. Future faking is a term when I bait you today with things in the future for your obedience right now. I say, you'll get this promotion in a couple months, but I need you to act this certain way, do these certain tasks right now, knowing full well you're never getting the promotion. He doesn't bait and switch. He doesn't sell you the top of the line and send you home with a lemon. God's promises are true. He always follows through and gives you of his best, of his son. In fact, God's speed in working in your life is a blessing to you. The next line reads this, but is patient towards you. So putting the two together, God is not slow, rather is patient towards you and towards me. Delay displays God's patient. One way of looking at it, like the scoffers did, is uh, it's been 2,000 years. Why hasn't Christ returned? Oh, it's because he's not actually coming. Therefore, do, how, do whatever you want to do. Live how you want to live. The other way is that God's patience has not run out. His patience is not run out. What an irony that we are to have active patience towards a patient God. Paul Tripp says this, God's patience is what gives time for grace to do its work. And you know we need time. You know we need time. The Israelites could never quite get it right. If they weren't chasing after gods of other nations, they were making idols for themselves or doing what was right in their own eyes, which is the repeated phrase from the book of Judges. Yet God chases after them like a husband chases after an adulterous wife. He chases after them with signs and wonders, with miracles and predictions. He sent prophets to their people and to the kings to call them to repentance. He spoke to the prophets of a coming Messiah, a savior, a rescuer. Thus God stayed his hand 
and was patient, waiting for the day in the fullness of time when the perfect time had come for the Messiah to be born. And as Jesus gathered around himself a motley crew of ragtag Jewish men, they just couldn't play their part. Jesus rebuked them for speaking as of Satan. They doubted his provision for their bellies. They, they doubted that he was actually who he said he was. They sold him for 30 pieces of silver. They fell asleep while guards were coming to get him, and they denied him three times. Nevertheless, God did not rain fire from heaven while his son hung on the cross, while, others, while his followers looked on, he again stayed his hand and was patient, for this day was not a day of judgment, but it was the day of atonement. And today, this world is disrobing itself of Christian values. It's thumbing its nose at moral living, at biblical definitions of uh, gender, sexuality, and marriage. Even in the church, there is moral decay and gospel dilution. Many churches are adopting the definitions of the world instead of bringing biblical definitions to the world and allowing those definitions to be how they interpret the world. They are watering down the gospel, the power of God to save, so much so that it's not even needed anymore in many churches. I say all this to say, God's hand is still stayed. He is patient for his grace to do its work. He is patient for all tribes and all tongues to hear the good news of the atonement that was made for you. God's heart is full of patient grace, and he wants to grow his family to full capacity he says this, Peter says this next, he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, be, should reach repentance. So is God a universalist? Are we able to go to God in any way we can, climb the mountain towards God in any way we can? Well, let's, let's look at one more text, and maybe it'll add to the confusion. 1 Timothy 2.3 says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of Him. Even John 3.16, For God so loved the world. God loved the world. that He gave His Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So if God desires all to reach repentance and to be saved, does that mean that everyone is ultimately saved through faith in something? Just have faith? I love to continue reading John 3.16 because John 3.17, 3.18, and 3.19 add such clarity to that verse. 3.18 begins, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. God's desire is to patiently and with great sacrifice save the lost but there is only one way did you hear it did you see it repentance of sin and turning to Jesus as the only way to God God is patient that all would know Jesus and not perish that is his revealed will don't perish 
Here is my son. He died for you. Accept him as your savior. Accept him as your sacrifice for the sin, the sin that you committed that deserves punishment. You deserve to perish. And I gave you my son is what God says. I gave you my word that you can read about him. I gave you my church that you you should grow in him. Don't perish, but turn from your former sin. Turn from your current sin that holds you in slavery and in bondage. I mean, people in here, we, when, when we say our, form, or our current sin, we say mentally, yes, I, I know what that is. Individually, I, I know what that is for me. I know my sin propensities, and I know you do as well, and I know that they can hold you in bondage and slavery without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the sacrifice of Jesus in, in your life. Turn from it, the light has come in, into the world. So that's God's revealed will. Come into the, uh, the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. God's desire, his will is to offer everything you need, but people choose against him. He, they choose against him, but God is patient. He's patient for the scoffers. He's patient for the thief on the cross, and he is patient with you His delay in your life is his patience towards you that his grace may do his work and that brings him joy. It brings him joy when a sinner repents. Jesus says that in Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons that have no repentance. Peter says, repent Don't perish, but repent. He's drawing you away from your sins. God is patient, but sin will cause you to perish. Even today, church family, sin will lead you in bondage towards hell. And Jesus has offered you everything through his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice at the perfect time that you can turn to him, accept him as your savior and your king, walking out of the gates of hell toward the promise of his coming again. For there will one day be a day when his hand is not stayed. There will be a hand when, day when his hand is not stayed. God's patient will run out someday and he will fulfill his promise. The return of the son Jesus will be a dreadful day for the lost And for the ungodly. Listen to what Peter says. He goes on to describe it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Despite what the scoffers say. And the the day of the Lord. The day of judgment. The day of Jesus' return. Will come. And when it does. No one will know. Now. Many people try to know. Many people devote their lives to movies and to documentaries and to billboards and to drawing people around themselves saying they know when he will come. But Peter says here, Jesus says in the Gospels, no one will know. It will be like a thief, or Jesus says like a thief in the night. If I was a good thief, which I'm a, I'm a bad thief, I always get caught. Uh, but if I was a good thief, I, I, w- I, would, I, would, <laughs> I would come up on you with surprise, right? I would come when you're not looking. 
pickpockets. They, they, they don't tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, this is about to go down. <laughs> they, they're halfway down the subway track before you find out you're missing your wallet or your watch. Such is the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief. No one knows. If anyone claims to know, do not listen to them. Do not listen to them. Even Peter, on whom the church was built, didn't know. The first coming of Christ was meek and it was humble. The God-man was born without pomp and circumstance, laid in a manger which was a trough for animals. Stinky shepherds gathered around him and worshipped him, but no one else knew. The second coming will be so much different. It will be so much different. The book of Revelation says this. He will be coming out of the clouds. Everybody going to see him. He'll be coming out of the clouds, riding on a white horse, eyes flaming with fire, and his robe dipped in blood. A sword will be coming out of his mouth. Why? Because it's to strike down the nations, the enemies of the living God. Tattooed on his thigh and written on his robe, it'll say, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will, this is so frightening, Tread the winepress of the fury of God Almighty. Tread the winepress. When we're, you're making wine, you crush grapes. I just imagine a white horse with a dude on it with a sword sticking out of his mouth, crushing the nations that have rose up against him. It says, this is probably TMI, but, but it says that the birds will gorge themselves on the bodies of the enemies of God. It will be a terrifying day. The return of Christ also initiates then uh, the, the result, which is the burning up of the earth and the heavens. He talks about the heavenly bodies being burned up, which are the planets and the stars. All the universe will be purged by fire, and the earth and the works thereon it will be burned up. Uh, Though similar to other verses that speak of uh, being judged by the works on earth, this this works is not speaking of our personal moral works, though they will be judged. We will be judged by the works that we have done here on earth. But what this is referring to is the man-made things on the earth, also the mountains and the rivers. Everything will be consumed with fire and burned up, which makes us rethink our stuff. Oftentimes we talk about our $50 pair of jeans and our $100 uh, watch, and we talk about those will one day be sold for a dollar at the yard sale. This is going to be saying after they're sold for a dollar, they're going to be burned up with fire. How much do you value your things? How much do you value your stuff? goes on to say, Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness and holiness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So here we're coming to a crescendo in the text. You notice notice there's no question mark. It's weird how he says it. What sort of people ought you to be uh, in lives of holiness? There's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. 
It's not a question. It's what sort of people should you be in lives of holiness and godliness? If this is true, which God's promises are always true, it then dictates how we live our lives. So in holiness and godliness then is, like Kirk talked about last, last week, living today as if Jesus was coming back tomorrow. Where do you want to be found? What do you want to be doing? We conduct ourselves as messengers of God. We conduct ourselves as reconcilers, reconciled to be reconcilers. We conduct ourselves in such a way as not to tarnish the, the ministry that we do. And reading forward, it says that we would be found spotless and without blemish. We conduct ourselves as if Christ, our King, is truly our King. He has authority over our lives, and He's coming. He's coming. But it, but it says more than that. So it doesn't just say, do the right things. It doesn't just say, live right, do right. We, yes, yes to that. And it says, this is so important, it says, Wait, so it says lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day. Those are different, they're opposite. How do we wait and hasten? It seems like they don't go together. But, but it's so important because this is going back to the active patience which we talked about in the beginning. We don't wait for the coming of God just watching Christian TV, holding ourselves up in our house, not entering into our community. We, we, don't, we don't wait for the coming of the Lord with anxiety by uh, watching the news with our Bibles open to the book of Revelations or creating a doomsday calendar. No. We actively and patiently wait on the Lord. So... So to do that, then, we must be tolerant of bumps in the road. We must be tolerant of curves in the road, right? That's, that's what the definition of uh, patience was, okay? So if that's the case, then uh, it means that what we do today is a pushing forward to his return. It means our sanctification matters. It means us following the Lord actively today is our waiting for his return. This is not all that we do, sitting and listening. We must respond. We do that every week. We must respond to the gospel. And that part of that response is outside of these doors. It's us going out into the world actively waiting for the Lord in everything that we do. And he says, hastening. So we wait and we hasten. We, we pray for the lost. We pray for the lost and we pray for thy kingdom come. We pray for the Lord to return. We pray for the Lord to right all the wrongs, not both civilly in, in our country, in our community, but, as, but spiritually as it pertains to sin in the lives of ourselves and in the lives of others. So we pray for his coming. Uh, we further the preaching of his gospel and witness to all of the nations. I'd like to bring up 2 Timothy uh, 4, 5. It says, 
As for you, always be sober-minding, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That is hastening. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfilling your ministry. Every one of you in here who bear the name of Christ are in the ministry. It is not relegated just to the pastors of your church. You should be primarily creating relationships with others so that you can serve others, so that you can love them, so that, underline, you can preach the gospel to them. Never, ever, ever let your service be enough. Yes, we are called to serve. Never, ever let your your, your love for one another uh, be enough. That there's so much that we're called to do. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel. Know the gospel. Know your testimony so that you can share it with another. I don't have to know what the grips of methamphetamines are. I know the grip of sin. Therefore, I know the grips of methamphetamines. We, we can share with how the Lord has drawn us out of sin, drawn us out of the deep end of the pool, sharing the gospel so that they can hear it and be saved. That's what, that's what Romans 1 says. Not ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist because it's the power of God for salvation. It's the only power that we have. As we wrap up, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If the earth and the heavens are burned up in the day of the Lord, where will the righteous dwell? We will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the culmination of the return of Jesus, the destruction, the judgment, and the final victory over Satan, sin, and death. This is the goal. This is what we're waiting for. It's a renewed dwelling for the righteous. To put Peter's argument together, the flood baptized by water and the day of the Lord will baptize through fire, thus purifying the earth and cleansing it of all evil, thus ushering in the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness shall dwell forever. Revelation 21 tells us that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw a holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the promise. This life isn't all there is. Jesus will return. This life doesn't have to be lived perfectly, like we see on Instagram and Facebook, where you pose your kid, quickly snap their picture, and then they turn into an evil monster again. It doesn't have to live, be lived perfectly. The gospel tells us that though our life is imperfect, Jesus lived the perfect life. Not perfect in that everything went his way and he lived his best life now, but he suffered and he died so that we could live our best life with him forever. 
on the new heaven and the new earth. We don't know when God will return, but at this moment, his hand is stayed. He is exercising patience, and that is to our benefit. And there must be a sense of urgency in our ministry and evangelism to spread the gospel that men and women around us would be drawn to repentance, which is the Lord's good desire. His wrath has not come. And this is a gift and a call to action. This is a call to evangelism. It is a call to live today like Jesus will return tomorrow. So we must be actively patient until the Lord comes. Actively patient toward, before the Lord comes. So real quick in, in, in points of application, we must orient our conduct like Jesus will return tomorrow. This is a great theme that we must repeat. What do you want to be doing? How do you want to be living your lives? Where do you want your kids to be? Where your wife to be? When Jesus returns tomorrow. If Jesus returns tomorrow. Number two, show grace to those around you and yourself. You, you can't control people, but you can minister to them. They, they can cause you to steer left and steer right, but we know that as we're going towards our goal, there will be bumps in the road, but we can show grace as we've been shown grace. And number three, know the gospel, preach the gospel. Know your story, know your testimony, know how God's promises have proved true in your life you may share them with others. There's great urgency this morning. There's great urgency right now as we, the church, live in a day and age where many need to hear that good news. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray for Gospel Community Church that it would be a church that lives out your great commission that we would go to the ends of the earth. Father, bring us uh, people, bring us leaders that would take us to the ends of the earth. Take our money, our donations to the ends of the earth, that your children, that your elect, that they would hear your voice and rise up out of death into life. Father, I pray that we would be bold in our evangelism, that we would be consistent in our ministry, and that we would be deeply, deeply, deeply indebted into your love. Father, give us urgency as we actively and patiently await your return, the fulfillment of your promise and your coming kingdom that is be so glorious. Jesus, we love you. We pray all of this in your mighty name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.